Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up this week, the docu-series, Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. I sit down with the series director and executive producer, Billy Corbin, and executive producer, Alfred Spellman. A note to listeners, this podcast episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch all six episodes of Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami, before listening on. And an audio note, I am recording this show while on the road in a hotel room, so if you notice a change this week, please excuse that. Cocaine Cowboys, The Kings of Miami is a six-part saga on the South Florida traffickers indicted in one of the largest drug cases in U.S. history. Cuban exiles Augusto Willie Falcone and Salvatore Sal Magluta were accused of smuggling over 75 tons of cocaine into the U.S. in the 1980s. The high school friends built a reputed $2 billion empire that made Willie and Sal, a.k.a. Los Muchachos, two of Miami's biggest celebrities. Drug dealing was something that was natural to me. If you would have told us that we were criminals, we would have laughed. We're 20-year-old kids. We're just having fun. Willie and Sal were the kings of cocaine in South Florida. They're first-generation immigrants. They thought this was their path to the American dream. The most prolific drug traffickers in U.S. history. All of Miami considered them local heroes because they were like the Robin Hoods. They always shared their wealth. Basically, it's a Fortune 500 company run by a bunch of muchachos. Cash, boats, cars. I'm not going to lie, he wasn't like the first drug dealer that I went out with. The offshore powerboat champions indicted for trafficking more than 75 tons of cocaine, the largest drug case in history. Let the games begin. And they did. They enjoyed living on the edge, being like cat and mouse. See if you can find me. They would get arrested, just change your ID, get new driver's licenses. That's Miami. Billy Corbin, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks, Rebecca. And Alfred Spellman, it's wonderful talking to you too. Great to be with you, Rebecca. Now, you guys have known each other for a long time. Uh, Billy, can you just tell me a little bit about your relationship and your collaboration? Sure. I first met Alfred in ninth grade, middle school television production class wow. at Highland Oaks Middle. Our teacher, Sheila Spicer, Miss Spicer, 
she recognized something in us and literally gave us the keys to the studio. There was a TV studio, first period, every day, and we had to produce the morning news that was broadcast in the closed circuit TV throughout the school. And that's what we did. We produced the morning news every day, and we have been working together ever since. We started our first production company when we were sophomores in high school. Hmm. It was called Spellman Corbin Productions. Very creative. <laughs> uh, we sounded sounded like a slip and fall law firm here in Miami is what it sounded like. The insurance companies have attorneys working for them. You need Spellman Corbin. <laughs> and we started Rack and Tour about 20 years ago. And we have a third partner, I should mention. Some people refer to him as the snuffleupagus of the operation because they've heard a lot about him but never seen him. But David Sipkin, who I've known since preschool, actually, he's like the guy who handles all the posts. So all the amazing editing on Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami, Dave like was locked in a room for years on end putting that together. Wow. So, Alfred, tell me about your working relationship. What does Billy do? What do you do? Like, how did you contribute to this series? Well, it's actually been the same since ninth grade in TV production class, actually. <laughs> um, Billy directs, I produce, Dave edits. Um, I would say if you had to kind of divide up the responsibilities, Billy is kind of in charge of creative. I'm in charge of business. And there's obviously a lot of overlap between the two. Making a movie is a team effort and impossible to do solo. So you need every member of the team to make it happen. And luckily we came together and we all have very unique skill sets, the three of us. And it's, uh, it's worked now for almost uh, 30 years. Well, I will tell you a full disclosure. Uh, the reason I'm recording this podcast from my hotel room is because I am at a podcast conference right now. And I mentioned to somebody that I was interviewing the two of you by name. And they said, the Cocaine Cowboys guys? So your first Cocaine Cowboys released years and years ago is kind of a cult classic that people know about. Um, Billy, can you just, for people who haven't seen that one, just give an overview of what that version, that series, Cocaine Cowboys, was about? Yes, very much a cult classic, which I define as everyone has seen it and it's made no money. <laughs> We're not one-hit wonders, but we may be one-trick ponies. It's starting to aim. I'm going to ask you about that. <laughs> so, uh, it is the fourth release in the franchise, but Kings of Miami is the first story we wanted to make at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves. So this is really full circle for us because the Cocaine Cowboys that came out in 2006 that we started to pursue in the early 2000s was actually our plan B. It was our backout plan when the Willie Falcone and Sal Magluda, Los Muchachos, the boys story just didn't pan out for us at that time, which was always the dream to tell this story that's out on Netflix now. But the plan B of Cocaine Cowboys was really, it's a mosaic. It is a story of Miami in the 1980s and how the cocaine trade and the revenue generated during that trade turned out to be the only successful case study of Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics, where really the billions of dollars, I mean, as high as $12 billion a year, which would have eclipsed Miami's two biggest legitimate industries, which were real estate and tourism, all of that money found its way into legitimate business, into law enforcement, into criminal justice, into politics, and ultimately into literally our infrastructure and built the city of Miami as we know it and love it today. Um, we wanted to tell that story, as I said, through a mosaic where we interviewed cocaine traffickers, cocaine wholesalers, smugglers, a hitman, police officers, journalists, lawyers, and each of them representing a different tile in this mosaic. And when you zoomed out, 
they had created the portrait of the Miami skyline, if you will, and, and telling really the story of a city and a community that came of age during the cocaine wars and was really in many ways defined by it also through pop culture, Scarface, Miami Vice, etc. So it was the, the true story of Scarface and Miami Vice. So you mentioned that cocaine is such an integral part to the pop culture character of Miami. Is that why you guys are so fascinated with this storyline, Alfred? Or are you just super into blow and like this is your way of getting it out of your system? (laughs) Modern Miami as we know it was founded on the back of the narcotics trade. The hypothesis that Billy had alluded to in the first doc was kind of proving this thesis that Miami went from God's waiting room to America's Riviera on the back of the narcotics trade. And there's only a few other cities in history where you could kind of point to that have a similar type of trajectory, right? I mean, you'd say maybe, you know, the gold rush in California in 1849, maybe the Dutch tulip craze, but there's not many other cities where a single commodity has single-handedly transformed the entire cityscape. And that's what cocaine did to Miami. So I I think it's a fascinating thesis. And it certainly also kind of flies in the face of kind of our understanding of the war on drugs. Uh, Our mayor at the time, Maurice Ferre, bragged about how Miami was succeeding while the rest of the country was in the midst of a terrible recession because of all the drug money that had been funneled into our banks. It uh, It was a point of civic pride, at least for the mayor at the time, it seemed. That's truly incredible. You know, I was thinking about this watching the documentary. You know, we have this sort of reflexive thing in true crime, which I don't always agree with sort of about um, there's a lot of criticism about the, you know, quote unquote glorification of criminals. But you guys didn't do that. Like the time and place did that. (laughs) Like uh, McLuda and Falcone were able to ride around on their cigarette boats and they were kind of beloved in a way that, you know, growing up in New York reminds me of the way like the Gotti family was sort of seen very affectionately by a lot of people, despite all the bad stuff they were doing. So Billy, that kind of like, you didn't have to do that. Like they did it for you in a lot of ways, right? Well, listen, this story ends the way all these stories end with everyone either dead or in prison. Mm. I don't think there's anything glorious or glamorous about that. But it is, in fact, a rise and fall story. And the rise part of that story does look like fun, you could argue. I mean, these guys were in their teens when they started in the drug business. And by the time they were busted, they were only in their early to mid-30s, meaning they became billionaires, multi-billionaires with a B, in their 20s and 30s. So they were living wild lifestyles. Uh, They were world champion offshore powerboat racers. They were members of the hottest clubs in town. The music at the time, you know, the pop culture at the time, it all seems like a lot of fun. But that's the rise. That's on your way up. Eventually, they run out of runway, you know, and they run out of time and the authorities catch up with them. And so after that, it is not so fun. And it is not so glamorous anymore. And I think you also, in, in time and place, you have to remember that, that these guys as first-generation immigrants, um, their parents were very hardworking. Their parents, uh, you know, uh, having lost a country in Cuba, having left all of their family, friends, their belongings, their property behind, they came here and they worked very hard. These kids were kind of in search of the mythological American dream. And when they looked around Miami in that era, they're almost guilty by geography. You know, they, They're looking around and they see friends becoming successful overnight. I think there was this kind of warped perception of the American dream by any means necessary uh, here. And so they pursued this avenue as many young people did 
in Miami at the time. Cuban exile, Anglo, African-American, Haitian-American. It was an industry down here. And, and Willie and Sal wound up essentially as the co-CEOs of a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation, the primary product of which was illicit, was cocaine. Hmm. Alfred, I'm sorry, I have to ask, do you see parallels between Los Muchachos and the two of you? I mean, they met when they were very young. They built something together. Um, I don't think you guys are prison bound. I'll be you know, fully honest about that. But I mean, did you find yourself in any way just relating to that relationship as you really dove into the story for all these years? Well, we're 42 and we're still referred to as the boys uh, really? here in, in Miami. So I think that I, I, but I actually just wanted to go back to something that you just mentioned to your question about glorification, because it's something that obviously having made Cocaine Cowboys documentaries now for 15 years, we do get asked that. Um, and, you know, I always think that it's it's a just a matter of how far separated you are from the events. And the example I always use is we all go to Disney World, take our kids, take our nephews and nieces, whatever. You go to Disney World, go to the Magic Kingdom, and you go on Pirates of the Caribbean, where we're all singing, yo, ho, ho, it's a pirate's life for me. And if you know anything about the Pirates of the Caribbean of the 1700s, the 1800s, these were some of the most vicious murderers and thieves and rapists. I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean were nobody to be uh, emulating or celebrating, but 200 years later, you get a ride to Disney World. So uh, I suppose it's possible we'll all be on the Magic Kingdom Los Muchachos ride, uh, you know, if uh, Disney World's still around 100 years from now. <laughs> Just make sure your portrayals of the characters are authentic and not appropriated, okay? It's an important thing in Disney World right now. Um, I want to talk about your access to, like, just about everybody that matters in this story. Um, you've got, of course, Marilyn Bonachea, Sal Magluta's girlfriend. You have a ton of prosecutors, law enforcement types. You've got a journalist. And of course, you have one of my favorite characters, George Valdez, former drug kingpin, is this thing across his screen there. How did you get these people, especially the people sort of on the, the kingpin side of the equation, to talk to you for this film? So here's the funny thing. As I told you, this is full circle for us. You know, Sal Magluta's second trial was in, ended in 2002. And so when we first started pursuing the original Cocaine Cowboys documentary, the wounds were a little too fresh. People were not ready to come on camera and talk about this. And then as the first Cocaine Cowboys documentary started to come out, people were getting out of prison. They were getting out of the witness protection program. And people started to reach out to us. And we started to reach out to them. And through the years, we started to accumulate better and better access. And Marilyn Bonachea was one of the first key interviews in this process that really got us going. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned, because George Valdez was the hardest one to get. Hmm. He was the toughest one to get. He's my favorite, just FYI. He's like, he's my favorite. <laughs> and George's story is extraordinary. And we barely scratched the surface here. I think there might be another spinoff or a sequel with George because George was an educated man. I think he graduated from the University of Miami. He was an accountant. He was the youngest employee at the Federal Reserve branch in Miami. And he met a Colombian dude. And then he got into the banana business. I'm doing air quotes here, podcast <laughs> listeners. And he started exporting bananas from Colombia and importing them into Miami. Needless to say, he was not grossing a million dollars a month importing bananas. It was, in fact, cocaine that he was bringing in on a slow month, 800 kilos per month. Uh, and so he's the guy that helped put Willie and Sal in business. He gave them the keys to the kingdom, pun very much intended. And so George did a total of 10 years and found God. 
became a very religious man, wrote a book called Coming Clean, where he confessed his sins, moved on with his life, became successful in legitimate business after his prison stint, and really was kind of about helping others learn from his mistakes and helping people find redemption and moving on and not writing people off just because they've served a prison trade, but letting them know that there is life and there is hope and there is faith afterwards. So he was not necessarily ready to relive the battle good old days or the good old bad old days. And so it took us, wow, what, like two or three years, Alfred, I think, to finally get George to come around to saying that this would be you know, an interesting experience for him. And I think it was, and I think you, and I mean, listen, it's a testament that he is your, your favorite, Rebecca. And I will tell him that, and he will send you an autographed copy of the 25th anniversary of his book. Yeah. That's what I was hoping for, honestly. <laughs> Either that or him to provide me with some wardrobe consultation because he is sharp. He is a sharp, sharp dresser. Is he not? Better dressed than the criminal defense attorneys, better dressed than the prosecutors. Yes. Oh yeah, dashing. He's dashing. Hundred percent. Um, I want to talk a little bit about filtering the story. I mean, Alfred, I don't know it, at what point you actually see these interviews or see cuts. Do you see the raw stuff or do you see early cuts? Because I, I have a question for you as somebody who is like not the the main guy making the thing. Oh well, we we, we are a boutique operation at Rack and Tour. Mm. Uh, I like to say, you know, there are companies that produce hundreds of hours of television a year. Uh, those are factories. We are a boutique operation. We make everything by hand, and so for all these interviews in, in Coke Cowboys, I was on set oh. uh, the whole time uh, with Billy. And a lot of times, what we do is I'll give Billy a briefing beforehand. We'll kind of go back and forth on some questions, and then during the interview, I'll be sitting on G Chat with Billy, kind of you know following up on things or things that I hear about, or if Billy needs any sort of research, because obviously these interviews span somebody's entire life, essentially. And so you need to have kind of the details readily at hand, somebody kind of being able to pull those up as necessary. So I, I'm sitting there listening to them as, as we shoot them. I have to say, Rebecca, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to prompt Alfred on something. There's a line in the series where like there may be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami at that time, it was like one or two degrees from Willie and Sal. And Alfred has a story about like the, how we, we get into this. Tell me. <laughs> um, in eighth grade, Sal and Willie get arrested on October 15th, 1991. Sal gets arrested on Lagorse Island in Miami Beach, which is 10 minutes from where I grew up and about 15 minutes from our present day office. And my best friend growing up, his father was a big criminal defense attorney in Miami. And, you know, this is 1991, the era of the car phone, you know, with the speaker phone, the big integrated unit in the car. The giant brick. Yeah, the giant brick. And so when my best friend's dad would drive carpool to a little league practice, I would be hearing the names Willie and Sal starting in eighth grade. These were guys that we had been familiar with even before Billy and I met. So the both of us have been following this story through our middle, high school, and college, and what would have been our law school careers had we got to law school. Just picture this only in Miami scene of the middle school kids going to Little League practice with the cocaine lawyer dad yelling into the car phone about <laughs> Willie and Sal smuggling 75 tons of cocaine and $2.1 billion. And that's the truth. I went to high school at New World School of the Arts in downtown Miami, a half a block right around the corner from the federal courthouse where during our senior year in high school, Willie and Sal had their first trial. And then when we were in college at the University of Miami, that's when Sal had his second trial. So ultimately these documentaries in a way are about our childhoods, if you will, growing up in Miami. 
That's really interesting because it makes me think of kind of where I was going with my earlier question about the sort of cogency of the narrative of all of your interview subjects. And I'm glad to hear that you had research on hand because I know how hard it is to get interviewees to provide your expositional glue, which you guys do brilliantly in this. Um, but it does seem like there is a very visceral reaction to a lot of these events that as a viewer, I found myself thinking like, Marilyn remembers that. She remembers that because she would say something and then laugh about it like she was there. So was that the case with all of the subjects? Did they all like feel so connected to this thing that happened so long ago that you were able to capture that? Because that's how it felt to me. Well, this was a pretty significant event or series of events in everyone's lives, you know, and, and I mean, I mean, everyone from the uh, criminals, co-conspirators, cooperating witnesses to the feds. I mean, you go to the FBI building in Washington, D.C., and you go on the tour and every state, they pick a seminal case that best represents the work of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the history of the country and in this state. And for Florida, it's the Willie and Sal jury tampering case. Yeah, that yeah. is That is the case. So whether it was for law enforcement in their careers or the individuals who participated in, in this conspiracy or in these cases, this was very visceral. And they have very clear memories, very, very much in the moment. And then what you do is you kind of have to, through the interview, transport them back there, right? And just kind of give them a sense of time and place and have them set the scene for you. And of course, it helps when we have just as much information, if not more than they have, and can help prompt them and remind them of dates and times and locations if they need it. And then it all just comes right back to them. Yeah. But Marilyn specifically, <laughs> I mean, she's a fascinating character. She is like beguiling in a seemingly very authentic way. And her involvement in the story is to hear different characters in documentary talk about it. It could have been one thing. It could have been a different thing, but she certainly has a, a big emotional attachment to this part of the history of her life. Alfred, I'm curious, what were your impressions of Marilyn? What was it like spending all this time with her? Um, how did you feel when she would laugh when recounting a detail that was, you know, I would have been personally horrifying to me to be arrested with, you know, drugs in my car or whatever. She was like, yeah, you know, everything was just so like real to her. How was that for you? Well, Marilyn was actually the very first interview that we shot for this documentary. She had reached out to us. I was obviously very familiar with her story because I was familiar with how the case obviously turned out. And so to hear from essentially the chief witness in that case was an interesting starting place. You know, a lot of times when we kind of pick and choose how we approach interviews, a lot of times we'll start with some peripheral characters because those are the people that kind of give you insights and information into your main character. So you want to be able to kind of hear what they have to say and then be able to ask questions of kind of your key character. So in this case, obviously doing Marilyn's interview first, there was so much territory to cover. Uh, we ended up shooting, I think, four entire days with her. And during her interview, her ability to recall, her ability to kind of, like you said, to look at these events with kind of a sort of a semi-detachment, right? Because it's it's such serious stuff she's talking about, but does it so good-naturedly that it throws you for a second and then it becomes, I, I find it to be endearing. Me too. I was 15 and a half. It was summer and I needed a job. My mom said, next to Publix is a bakery, a Jewish Cuban bakery with the rye bread, the pumpernickel. 
And then they had guayabas and all that kind of stuff. So I said, okay, I went over there. And I met Sal's mom and dad and uncles. They all owned the bakery. The next day, I met Sal. And I just didn't like him. I thought, who is this guy with attitude here? He was supposed to be working in the back, but he would set up a stool where I worked, you know, the counter. And he'd sit there and watch, because I wore this, like, little pink uniform. It was really, really short. He would sit there and wait for me to bend over. <laughs> it's like nostalgia, right? It's like, remember what we did when we were crazy kids kinds of situation. Well, it just goes to show you, right? It's like the tragedies in your life, uh, you know, uh, uh, sometimes have to become comedies real quick because if they don't, you know, you're going to live a very sad life. So even the worst moments, I think, you know, at some point, 15, 20, 25 years on, you know, take on a, a different uh, feeling. Also, it's it's emotional compartmentalization. I think, you know, it's it's the classic, you know, if, if we didn't laugh, we'll, we'll cry. And so there's a lot of tragedy in her life, most significant of which we cover in the deleted scenes that'll be up on Netflix's YouTube uh, account. And so I, I think that's really what it is. And, and also I should mention that Marilyn had to testify under oath in at least seven or eight trials between occasionally committing perjury, as she later admitted. So she has a very clear recollection on, on her facts, at least, on her truth, I, I, will, I will say. Where do you land on this idea that some of the details she gave about her conversations with Sal were actually details she gleaned from reading stories in the newspaper? Because she does, by the way, say in the documentary a couple of times, I know that because I read it in the newspaper. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Rebecca. That's some episode six business. Listen, people have already seen it by the time they listen to this podcast. We hope. <laughs> yes, that's, that is true. That article that we all talk about, that 1993 Miami Herald article, was only possible because the Miami-Dade Police Department gave the Miami Herald all of that information. So the idea that that was being reported publicly, you know, again, when there's an open case and cops are searching uh, to solve a homicide, generally they don't put all of the details of it on the front page of the Miami Herald. So I think that part of this was a blunder by the police department for doing so. It certainly opened a door of reasonable doubt and I think that a skilled attorney like Jack De Niro and Rod Vereen and Neil Schuster were able to exploit that in terms of creating that reasonable doubt. I don't think we'll ever know. I think only, the only two people who know the truth are Sal and Marilyn. Um, if you had to point to, uh, you know, assign blame or look at how that defense was able to be presented, it was as a result of the police department blabbing to the press. Hmm. I do think the lawyers' perspectives on both sides in this documentary are so fascinating. One of the things that's most interesting to me is in the earlier episodes, you get Christopher Clark, assistant U.S. attorney, who I think it's fair to say that trial was a failure. <laughs> um, you know, and I and you you really get him to sort of dig into the case and talk about it. Was that difficult, you think, for him to talk about this huge case that got all this national attention that ultimately he basically lost? I think it's quite clear from the interview that he is still wounded, you know, that that there are still scars that have never healed from that case. I mean, that was, you know, attorneys in the public sector and the private sector toil in obscurity for an entire career and never come close to a press release case of this magnitude. This was the largest drug trafficking case in the history of the U.S. government at the time. It was the largest case that the, the U.S. Attorney's Office had ever taken on. I mean, this was a 
massive case, huge publicity, and this was a career-making case. And I think he still feels the sting that he was cheated out of it, that he did not get a fair trial (laughs) as the U.S. attorney. One of the defense attorneys had said after the case, you know, their biggest fear was that the government would present a dozen witnesses and get the trial over in three weeks. Uh, Instead, there were 70-something witnesses presented. The trial went from October to February. And it reminds me a lot of the O.J. Simpson trial, which had just wrapped up. uh, Mm -hmm. They made it boring, uh, right? They made it boring. Sometimes, (laughs) you know, sometimes more isn't better you know, in these types of cases. And the more witnesses you present that come with their own baggage and their own problems, uh, the worse it's, uh, the worse it gets. And I, and that's what happened here. I think that you just had reasonable doubt piled upon reasonable doubt piled upon reasonable doubt when the, when the witnesses themselves in some cases proved to be untrustworthy or had something to gain from their, from their testimony. We should be clear, Willie and Sal, I mean, forget OJ's dream team, Willie and Sal spent million on the defense in their first trial between attorneys, lead attorneys, trial attorneys, uh, pre-trial attorneys, associates, private investigators, paralegals. The cross-examinations of the government witnesses were blistering. The Because of the amount of prep work and PI work that the defense had done, William Sal's attorneys knew more about the government's witnesses than the government did. They came in armed with information and details on their background and, and information from other cases that they had previously been involved with that the government was just, I mean, Chris Clark and Pat Sullivan were just slack-jawed at the prosecution table going, how the hell do they know this? Where did they get this uh, from? And it's, that's, what you, that's what happens when you have $25 million to spend on your defense. And and Albert Krieger, may he rest in peace, who was representing Willie Falcone in the first trial, knowing full well the shenanigans that had gone on in, in that first trial, he still said to his dying day that they got their asses kicked, I think was his line about the government. And, and I don't know that he's wrong about that. Well, they didn't bribe every juror, right? (laughs) I mean, that's what I kept thinking. And there were jurors who said that they would have voted not guilty, who we know were not bribed. Right. It is incredibly difficult to put a case like that together. Let's be real. Like, tracing money is boring. It is boring, especially in a city where, you know, I think that in Miami in particular, because it was this, like, giant, as you said, like, capitalism was the story of cocaine traffic in Miami. Like the story wasn't, the predominant story wasn't people dying on the streets. It was wealth and capitalism. And so I'm guessing that to a lot of those jurors and to a lot of citizens, the crime seemed more victimless than not, right? That's exactly the reason why I believe they leaked the details of the alleged witness murders to the press. Right. Because they were Willie and Sal were not charged at that time with being involved in those murders. So I think in a way they were looking to taint the local jury pool by saying, without charging them with murder or having any evidence that they were involved in the murders at that time, they still got it out into the community and the collective consciousness that maybe they were murdering witnesses in this case. What does uh, Roy Black say? It's like, it's trial by news leak in that case. One of the attorneys says that juries in Miami are sort of naturally skeptical uh, of the government. They're yeah. kind of built that way. You really do have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. And there was virtually no powder 
no powder on the table in this case. They didn't catch them with a ton of cocaine. They didn't catch them mid-bust. This wasn't a bust of a shipment or a load or a smuggling operation. In fact, I think one of the jurors says quite clearly, the only cocaine introduced as evidence at trial was a baggie of personal use cocaine that was discovered in Willie Falcone's mansion, rental mansion in Fort Lauderdale when he was arrested in October of 1991. So it wasn't like they talked a lot about cocaine. They talked a lot about money, but there was not a ton of seizures at all of drugs or money in that first trial. Yeah. I can't believe some of the like the cinematic nature of so many of the bananas details in the story. I mean, when you watch Goodfellas and you see the scene where they're like cooking gravy into the prison and you think, oh my God, like that guy was able to like have access to cooking implements and could chop garlic in his cell. Well, in this story... The ladies became paralegals so that they could visit the guys in prison and have sex with them in, quote, lawyer visits. Um, The details are bananas. So my question for you, Alfred, was how many times during the researching, writing, production, interviewing for this film did you say, holy shit, either out loud or to yourself? Oh, all the time. And every episode, you know, I don't know that we necessarily designed it this way, but I think it was Richard Roper who pointed out, like every episode has at least one or two of those holy shit moments. In yeah. It. No, 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 no. We totally designed it that way, Alfred. What are you talking about? Fair enough. <laughs> A nice Richard Roper name drop, by the way. I did catch that. <laughs> it certainly accrued to our benefit. You know, and uh, my favorite one, which is the one that I think is just the height of, you know, if, if you wanted me to describe peak Miami to you, it would be a juror who is indicted for taking a bribe in the biggest drug trafficking case of all time. His defense is that the money that I was spending is not from a bribe, but my crooked former cop cousin who was involved in the Miami River Cop scandal 20 years ago, uh, finally was because the statute of limitations had expired. We're now spending the money that he used to rip off from selling cocaine back in those days. So it's not from a jury bribe. It's actually from cocaine trafficking from my crooked cop cousin. (laughs) Well, I actually think the peak Miami moment is when we find out Alexia, Peggy's (laughs) former partner, is now a real housewife of Miami. And then what we see about him in the credits, also kind of another holy shit moment. Like it never ends. It never ends with these people. (laughs) And it goes right through the deleted scenes. I mean, some of the stuff we cut out of the movie is just as insane, if not more so than what's in the movie. Uh, One of the guys, uh, Guillermo and Dara, who was like their own private money launderer in Panama. This guy was on in some of the corporate documents for some of their shell companies through Panama. So this guy, after the United States invades Panama and takes out Noriega and and brings him to trial here in the Southern District of Florida, ostensibly for drug trafficking, for allowing Panama to be a, a shelter and transshipment point for not only drugs, but drug money laundering. Who does the United States install as the next president after Manuel Noriega? Guillermo and Dara, Willie and Sal's own private money launderer. So again, the deleted scenes are filled with holy shit moments. I'm so glad to hear that because I usually ask directors about like the stuff that they had to cut. And I'm so glad I'm going to be able to see the stuff that you had to cut because I've got questions. Um, I have one production question. How'd you guys get the music done for this series? Because it's one of my favorite parts of how it was made. Honestly, I I only make movies so that I can do the soundtracks so that we can score them. I'm all passion, no talent in that department. But (laughs) it's very important to me. Our best documentaries that we've made are musicals. They just, they sing and there's just a rhythm to it and a tempo to it. And 
Carlos Alvarez, who did the original score, Pitbull, who did the original theme song. They just sort of unlocked something that's been in my head, you know, for years and put it on the screen. I mean, this is a story of Cuban exiles. This is a story of a Cuban crime family saga over decades and generations. And I wanted it to sweat Miami. I told Carlos, uh, the composer, I said, uh, you know, I want people sitting in bed watching this on Netflix. I want them to see their, their foot tapping at the edge of the bed throughout all six episodes. I told our host sound mixer, turn it up. He kept looking at me like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, turn the music up. It's the heartbeat. It's the pulse of the whole story. And it was something we spent a lot of time working on and crafting. And I said to Carlos, I don't care if it's an action cue or it's a low key atmospheric cue. It all needs to be rooted in Afro-Cuban and salsa elements. And I think in a way, Carlos virtually invented a new genre of film scoring, this sort of like salsa dramatic film scoring. There are precious few scores or even cues in that genre. And I know that because while we were looking to temp track this movie, we couldn't find the right kind of music. And so he infuses it with that Jan Hammer, Miami synth 80s vibe from the first Cocaine Cowboys, but then goes off in this amazing Cayocho direction with it that I just love. It is the driving force behind it. And I love the way you use it at the end of the episodes because, you know, when you have something that's six episodes long, you got to make a reason for someone to like want to move on. That's what did it for me. I felt like it was like the end of an aerobics class and like someone offered me an ice cream cone or something. It was pretty amazing. Um, I, I just have a, a question about Willie because he was deported to the Dominican Republic and no one knows where he is now because he left the Dominican Republic. Do you have any sense of what his life could possibly look like today? Yes. <laughs> Should we just leave it there? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, we also did see that Sal is incarcerated in the Supermax prison. I'm familiar with that prison for many other stories that I've covered on many other podcasts. Um, is he contactable or not in that yeah. prison? Yeah. Did you make an attempt to reach out to him? Yeah. In fact, we had done the interview with Marilyn back 10 years ago, 11 years ago, whenever it was. And um, we had started to accumulate other interviews. And around 2011, I think we did an interview with Ocean Drive Magazine, which is our big glossy Miami Beach mag. And we were asked, you know, what are you guys working on? We said, well, we wanted to tell the story about Willie and Sal. Well, lo and behold, unbeknownst to us, Sal apparently had a subscription to Ocean Drive magazine. I guess it's on the approved list. So, And he read this article in prison about us talking about wanting to make a documentary. And so he reached out, got in touch, and Billy and Sal uh, began a pen pal relationship for a while. And Sal eventually asked his attorneys to cooperate with us, asked his family to give us access to their entire archive of photos and home movies and trophies. And so uh, we spent days at various Magluta family homes, accumulating a lot of the material that you see in the doc. So we had a great relationship with Sal through pen pal, uh, as Billy did for, uh, for a while. Well, then, Bill, I guess I'll ask you this question, because in the final episode, we hear a lot from his most recent legal team, including Rod Breen, who runs us through how harsh his sentence actually was for the crimes he was actually convicted of, which were mostly financial crimes. 
Uh, and, you know, of course, you guys compare him to Al Capone and the fact that Al Capone was able to get out of prison eventually and sort of live his days out in relative luxury. There are a lot of bodies, though. And though he wasn't convicted of those, I'm wondering just how you feel about that, because he wasn't convicted of it. Like, let's be real. If he wasn't, then he's innocent in the eyes of the law. But did you find yourself thinking about that as you were taking these interviews about, you know, what a harsh sentence this guy got? I think about it a lot because, you know, Alfred alluded to it earlier. We were kind of on a pre-law track in our lives. And so I'm fascinated by the legalities and the constitutionality of his sentence. It's classic Capone. Al Capone was not convicted and went to prison for bootlegging or murder or rum running or gambling, or he went to Alcatraz for tax evasion. That's how the feds caught up to him. That's how they quote unquote got him. He served about eight years or so of a 10 year sentence and retired here to Miami Beach, just a mile or so away from where I'm right now and lived out the rest of his life on a mansion. And Sal was in fact convicted of similar crimes, of money laundering, of writing eight checks under a fake name from an Israeli bank to pay his attorneys. And for that, he received a sentence of 20 years per check, basically, to serve consecutively, uh, not concurrently as is more typical in these types of cases. And sort of an unprecedented sentence in part because the judge relied on the concept of acquitted conduct and the idea that she could consider acquitted conduct when sentencing him on these crimes. So not simply the crimes for which he was convicted, these money laundering crimes, but for the totality of the charges against him, which included witness tampering, which were three murders of potential witnesses, which was the jury tampering, all of these other crimes for which he was convicted. Now, again, you can say we know he did it, you know, we all know and, and yada yada. But what we are taught about our mythological justice system, the greatest justice system in the world, as we hear time and again, is that you are innocent until proven guilty. And once convicted by a jury of your peers, you face sentencing for the crimes you committed. And in that regard, I think it's certainly food for thought. I believe the Supreme Court has found it constitutional for judges to sentence on acquitted conduct. But I think it's I think a lot of us with whether you have a pre-law education or just this kind of basic civics education from public school, which I attended before UM, I think that flies in the face of a lot of what we are told and what we learn and understand about the criminal justice system. Not to mention that Willie Falcone, his partner in crime, literally and figuratively, pled guilty to similar crimes, to money laundering crimes. It was given in exchange for his plea a 20-year sentence of which he served 17. Sal went ahead with his trial, which is his constitutional right, and received what is known in the legal profession as the trial penalty. Because he demanded to go to trial and get his day in court, he gets the full, you know, the whole book basically thrown at him. And, and is it just that Willie is out and about in the DR or wherever he is, and Sal is serving 180 plus years in the harshest and strictest prison in the United States with dangerous, violent criminals and the worst terrorists in the history of this country. And what you'd be killing at is the pain that I both put my parents to and the pain that he's put us to all people. And the fact that he didn't get to bury his father, he's not gonna get to bury his mother. I feel really bad for Sal that he is in that prison, especially when we grew up the same. We had dreams to just 
be successful. There was a lot else we could have been. Right now, we could be talking about a story of redemption. Alfred, you grew up with Billy. You guys are making badass gangster films about Miami together. Um, do you ever regret not becoming a lawyer? No. <laughs> <laughs> the late David Carr from the New York Times had a great line. He said, you know, the job that I have is I get paid to get out from behind a desk, go out into the world, find people who have lived more interesting lives than I have, and I get to come back and tell everybody about it. Hmm. And that's what I love about what we do. We get to tell the world uh, about people that are, that are more interesting than us. Now, Rebecca, ask our mothers that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm certainly glad you guys didn't become lawyers. So I got to watch Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. Billy and Alfred, thanks so much for talking to me about your documentary. I just really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director and executive producer Billy Corbin and executive producer Alfred Spellman. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode where we'll continue our coverage of Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.